Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by Mark Kuang Ho, who was a three-term congressman and businessman in the Philippines. He's a former representative of the 5th District of Pangasinan in the Philippines, um, and also served as vice chairman of the Committee on Appropriations for two terms. Uh, Mark is the author of House Bill 04631 that sought the immediate recommissioning and commercial operation of the Bataan nuclear power plant. Mark, it's a pleasure having you here on Decouple. Hi, Chris. Um, I'm glad to be here. Big honor for me. <laughs> well, you know, Mark, you're, you're very active on Twitter. Um, and uh, I've been really curious to bring um, some voices from the global south and just from outside of, of the kind of myopia of, of the West um, to understand some of the motivations that people have around the world um, yes. for being uh, interested in nuclear power. But before we get to that, um, could you just kind of introduce yourself a little bit on a more human level? Tell us a bit about yourself, maybe your family or, or what you know, <laughs> yes, um, what your passions well, uh, are, that kind of thing. Uh, I became interested in nuclear uh, because uh, as a congressman in 2007, August of 2007, while defending the budget for the Department of Finance, I uh, found out that uh, we had fully paid the obligations to America, the Exim Bank of the 20-year loan. Uh, for the Bataan nuclear power plant. We had paid a total of $2.12 billion US dollars, 699 million of which uh, was interest payments and 1.4 something billion in principal payments. The plant was 100% uh, complete. Uh, in 1984, it completed its hot functional testing and in 1985, it uh, completed uh, the Ozark 2 mission sent in the Philippines to certify it as ready for core loading. And in fact, the nuclear fuel was already on site. It's a, fasc uh, it, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating story. And we'll, we'll get into a bit more of the depth there. But, um, yeah. you know, that the Philippines <laughs> basically is a sort of has is a nuclear energy um, potential country, but just, you know, just one sort yes. of step away and, and kind of frozen in time for God, it's a long time now, 36 years. Yeah, all, over 30 years now. And, but, but before, you know, um, before we get into that, I just wanted to, you know, again, I've seen you on Twitter, you're like a, a very passionate advocate for nuclear energy for the Philippines. Um, yes. And, you know, I wanted to understand a bit more about why that is. Like, what, well, why, why nuclear well, in the Philippines? Uh, nuclear started in the Philippines in uh, 1958, the year after I was born, uh, by, uh, by the introduction of the Philippine Science Act, which established the PNRI, Philippine uh, Nuclear Research Institute, and the PAIC, Philippine Atomic Energy Commission. This was all brought about by the push of then President Eisenhower in the Atoms for Peace program. Uh, so that early, we already decided we wanted nuclear power because we had no indigenous source of fossil fuels. All our oil, all our coal, and all our gas uh, was imported at the time, no? Mm -hmm. So in 1972, the, you know, this was ongoing studies, site studies, uh, 
exploration of the technology by various administrations. And in 1972, uh, that was the year after martial law was declared by Marcos, um, the oil crisis, the first oil crisis hit and, the, and the, you know, the, the, the entire economy was paralyzed because of uh, we had to import all the oil for all the electricity. So he decided in, in the late, uh, mid to late 70s to go nuclear. And that's why we started building the Bataan nuclear power plant. The roots of that are way before him. And uh, he started that because of the, they immediately started that because of the oil crisis. And do you, like, so that's how, yeah. I mean, I, I obviously wasn't alive at the time of the oil crisis in, in the States, yeah. but I mean, it, it scarred the U.S. I mean, people, yes, gas lines, lineups uh, for gasoline and, yeah, you know, yeah. crises around and affected country. everything, you know, uh, water supply, everything. And I can, I can so only anyway, imagine, I can only imagine in a sort of less developed country that it, its impacts would have been yeah. far, far greater than that of the U.S. So like, do you have any yes. stories from that time or, or maybe? Yes, because the the Philippines had no ex no physical exports, no except raw materials, wood, and the forests were almost gone. Uh, they had cut all the trees, so all the wood went to the United States. The hardwood, um, you know, uh, you, you, something uh, trivia that uh, uh, U.S. Uh, warships uh, uh, all had their decking from uh, Philippine hardwoods. Huh. Uh, so <laughs> during World War II and not that era, no? before World War II and during World War II, that was the case. Anyway, we have, have no more uh, except agricultural produce. So we started exporting our people to earn foreign exchange, to import the materials needed by the Philippines for its economy to work. And um, that struck me as very sad because the human cost is, is huge. Families separated, uh, fathers, mothers separated from their kids, just to earn dollars, just to earn foreign exchange so that we could import these things. And one of the biggest import items is fossil fuels. So for me, uh, if we could substitute that fossil fuel import uh, by nuclear, you know, you would be saving like $600 million per gigawatt per year. Wow. Uh, it's a huge effect on 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 our economy and on our prosperity. We had a, we had a yeah. conversation earlier, um, you know, about this concept of you know Hans Rosling, uh, the famous uh, doctor, and uh, I guess he was an epidemiologist as well. That he talked about yes. the the washing machine people, and and you were you were kind yes. of relating that to the Philippines right now. Can you can you explore that for us a little bit? Yes, uh, example is a uh, washing machine, right? Uh, how much time of women would you be liberating if they no longer had to hand wash their clothes, the clothes for their families uh, in the in the villages? No, if they're if they're even if they didn't have their own washing machine, if there was a village washing machine center where they could go bring all these clothes and and uh, all the linen and wash it instead of uh, by hand, I mean, you would liberate uh, millions of women give them more time, they could read more, they could study, they could find another livelihood, uh, their standard of living would go up. And it, that would filter down to a big portion of society. Mm -hmm. So that's a big thing. Yeah. I agree that. with Rosling. I agree yeah. with Rosling on yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. 
can you just give us like a, a bit of that human picture of um you know families being split up i remember like I, i've traveled down to to central america and and been to some small towns where there are no men between the ages of 15 and probably 55 all the men have left almost without exception that's right and, and so, it's, a, it's a community of you know children mostly women and it's just it's just such a kind of disrupted demography what's the situation like in in philippines i know certainly like i work in healthcare in canada there are a lot of filipino nurses i know there's a lot of yes. Japanese here um yes you know also, I, understand, time, uh, I understand there's the, even sort of nursing schools in philippines that just train nurses with yes. the explicit purpose of exporting them yes uh you know that we account for half of all the seamen in the world uh, wow. so uh, uh, we we do, we do great manning uh, uh, work uh, for cruise ships and all of that entertainment industry um, in Southeast Asia. We're one of the poorer countries. So in Malaysia, in Taiwan, in Hong Kong, and and uh, rich cities in China, Korea, a lot of nannies are from the Philippines, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in, to America, we exported teachers, so it 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 robbed us of good teachers here, right. no, and nurses to United States and Canada and Europe, um, and then um, our welders, uh, our our skilled uh, craftsmen went to Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates. In fact, the the four new new nuclear plants there, the Baraka nuclear power plants there. Uh, thousands of Filipinos helped build that, and hundreds of Filipino engineers helped to to, to design that. Well, the working drawings in uh, Korea, right? Wow. So uh, there's a big involvement of Filipino in, in those areas. Now, when a when a person leaves, he can't come back every month. Uh, it's just too expensive. So usually they sign a contract, one year or two years or three year contract. They don't come home. Mm. So they're completely absent from their growing uh, family. Uh, their interaction with the kids is gone. So it's, they're left with the grandparents or with the uncle, aunt. Um, and that's really a, a painful thing, a costly, socially costly and painful thing. And, and you were um, saying, I mean, so the advantage of, of nuclear is that um, the, the fuel costs are quite small um, because uranium is so yeah, dense. The importation, no? Let's yeah. say uh, now our, our total capacity is like 16 gigawatts, right? And the MEDA is saying we need to double that capacity by 2030. Now, it's already 75% fossil fuels, no? Our hydro resources are already kind of tapped out uh, uh, because uh, communities no longer want to be relocated and flooded out of their, their, their valleys and their, their locations. So what we have to count on now is uh, uh, gas. Uh, and we, we also exhausted already our gas uh, supply. Uh, within 10 years, it will be gone. So it's going to be LNG imports and coal imports from Indonesia. And uh, the, the value of that is about $600 million per year per gigawatt. Now, if you multiply that by, let's say, 12 gigawatts right now, I mean, how many billion dollars a year are we talking about? No? And if we grow it to, 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 30 gigawatt, uh, to 30 gigawatts by 2030, 
I mean, how much uh, foreign exchange or, or this earnings of all our relatives uh, that they're, they're, they sacrifice so much, how much of that are we going to just burn as fuel? So that's wasteful for me. If we had nuclear, that amount of money or wealth would be going to build our uh, infrastructure and our economy and be providing for the future of Philippine society. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like, so part of part of the big cost of the fossil fuels is is not just you know the the price of gas or coal, which I understand, especially in South Asia, can really go up and down pretty dramatically. I heard Japan yeah. had a very cold snap, and that really drove up regional gas prices a lot. Yes, um, yes. But the, but the import as well is very expensive in terms of the shipping and things like that. Is that yes? Uh, when uh, when China uh, remember when they were building their cities for the Olympics. When they hosted the Olympics, the competition for bottoms uh, became so intense that the cost of shipping coal from Indonesia to the Philippines was worth more than the coal itself. And for a short period of time, the, the prices of electricity in the Philippines spiked because of the shipping cost. So it's not only that the, the cost of the coal, it's the cost of the shipping, the massive shipping, you know, uh, I did a calculation. Uh, if you had uh, one uh, uh, truck, uh, you know, an F600 truck, it could you could physically fit. I mean, not tonnage-wise, but but uh, volume-wise, you could fit uh, one refueling of a nuclear power plant on that, and you would do it once every 18 months. Uh, if that were coal, you would need 52, uh, 50,000 ton ships. Uh, Panamax, they call that Panamax-sized ships, continuously delivering coal. Uh, that's like three ships a month. And if there's any interruption whatsoever, you, you will have uh, power outages. So even the, the, the uh, security, energy security and national security, let's say there's, a, there's trouble in the West Philippine Sea and we can't get those ships in, all of a sudden we have power shortages. So that's the, that's the beauty of uh, nuclear, that that people seem, can't seem to get, uh, wrap their heads around. Uh, and I mean, so important. And it yeah. seems like that was the, the motivation for certainly nuclear in Japan, um, another country yes. that didn't have fossil resources and wanted energy security. Japan's, uh, fuel, Japan's yeah. fuel bill increased by $30 billion a year when they had to shut down all their, their power plants. Uh, and what made up the $30 billion is coal and gas importation and shipping. Wow, wow, and then you know Taiwan. I guess South Korea is effectively an island. So all of yeah. these these island nations, um, like for me, in terms of looking at, in the world where nuclear kind of took off or succeeded, it was either areas of fossil fuel scarcity, like France, um, and and I mean also these island nations that don't have indigenous fossil reserves, like you said, and also islands because of that energy security issue, because you can store years and years worth of fuel on site. You're not dependent yes. on this this vagrant. Yes. like France, no. Yeah. France uh, went into nuclear in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. They built up their capacity in the in that era. Like in in 15 years, they they went from uh, CO2 emitting to to completely clean as an accident. You know, the goal was to get uh, energy security and the, the effect was yes they got energy security but they also got for free and accidentally um, becoming environmental 
uh, I mean, good for the environment, no emissions, no pollution. Mm-hmm. So that's the plus that uh, people don't seem to to realize. And huge I've, plus. I've heard you call yourself an, an accidental environmentalist, I think, for that reason. That's right, because my number one uh, uh, driver is uh, for the economy, uh, for prosperity, to end poverty and hardship. Uh, in the Philippines, and I see the means to do that, the, the, the greatest means to do that as having cheap, and I'll define cheap as half price of what we have uh, right now for electricity. So we have the most expensive electricity in Southeast Asia, and at one time, not the not too recent past, in the entire world. No? Wow. So so that's why it's, that's keeping, that that has... Uh, made investors, world investors, avoid the Philippines as an investment destination in the last few decades. So when our neighbors were seeing double-digit economic growth, we were seeing sometimes negative growth because of brownouts, of uh, power outages. You know, companies were leaving the Philippines. We de-industrialized because we we didn't take care of our energy uh, supply. Wow. That that's that's the tragedy of that. Yeah, I mean it's it's. And funny. we had a and we had a nuclear plant right there that nobody used, right? Yeah. I mean that's that's worse. <laughs> that's adding insult to injury, you know. So, but I I I can see the the politics behind Bataan, and I can see how invested the local politicians are because the Catholic Church was used Bataan as a tool to demonize. Uh, Marcos, and I'm not going to defend Marcos. He had his wrongs, but uh, because they're so heavily invested, up to now they can't let go of the narrative. Yeah, and so I, I can see that Bataan will have a problem uh, politically to get a local approval, but because of what happened in the USA recently with the USNRC approving uh, extensions, uh, license extensions for your plants all the way to eight years and probably later on even uh, to beyond 100 years, uh, I'm seeing that uh, the window of Bataan remains open for the next 20 years at least. So mm-hmm. if, if we can get Bataan preserved till attitudes change, that's good enough for me. In the meantime, I'd like to work on uh, locating new nuclear plants, SMRs, in other provinces of uh, the of the Philippines, that's why I've been uh, going on. I uh, started a tour of uh, coastal uh, provinces, trying to convince them to invite the national government to locate nuclear plants in their territory, in exchange for free electricity. You know, for their their base consumption for the entire life of the nuclear plant, which will be about eight years. That would make that province outstanding in terms of its attraction to foreign investment or even domestic investment business. And I think that would be the example that everybody's waiting for to see, hey, does this really work? Does it really redound to the benefit of the poor? I think we can show it in that in that that kind of an example. Yeah, it's 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 very interesting. And I do want to explore more of the sort of reasons for the anti-nuclear sentiment in the Philippines. You mentioned yes. the Catholic Church. That's in the Philippines, works. it's in the Philippines, it's copycat. No, uh, we we like to we look we look we used to well we still do look up a lot to America and um, the social norms in America. When there's a there was the hippie movement in America, we also had our hippies here, right? Yeah. 
<laughs> so when the anti-nuclear movement uh, erupted there, we also had our anti-nuclear movement here. I mean, so it's copycat. It's, it's I think been, that's more than anything, that's it. It's been really fascinating though, um, you know, reading a little bit about the areas I've started to try and educate myself. And it seems like, you know, there's similar um, po political objections um, in say South Korea, Taiwan and, and Philippines where the nuclear programs are often started um, by authoritarian governments. And there was this kind of unfortunate tie between that system of governance and the technology. And so yeah, I'm not sure about the Philippines, but, but in, in Taiwan and South Korea, what I've heard is that it's kind of that, that toxic legacy of, of you know, people's memory of the politics of that time, which have really shaped their opposition to nuclear more than fear of accidents or, or other things. Is that, is that accurate yeah. for the Philippines? That's uh, accurate. But you know, when I, when I was campaigning for Bataan in Bataan province, in the province itself, in the town itself, the town of Morong has five villages. So I was going around the five villages. The local parish priest was following me around in a bus with his parishioners, about 30 of them, you know, heckling me all the time, you know, and I would invite them to join the conversation. They would never join the conversation. They would just heckle from the outside. But they even made a prayer against me, which they prayed at six in the morning and uh, during the Angelus at six in the evening, that, uh, you know, I should be, I should be guided because I'm, presenting danger. So uh, I've seen all of that kind of uh, religious fanaticism, uh, you know, devoid of uh, any uh, scientific uh, or factual or evidentiary basis. And that's what I'm trying to fight this with. No? Um, I present the evidence. I, I show them how uh, safe uh, nuclear is statistically in the world, even with Chernobyl, uh, Three Mile Island and Fukushima. No, if you remove Chernobyl uh, from uh, from the figuring because it had no containment, uh, the number of deaths for nuclear in the world, uh, if you include TMI and Fukushima, is zero. Yeah. I mean, what is safer than that? There's nothing safer than that that you could compare it to. So I, I try to bring these facts uh, uh, to the public uh, all the time, and it's. It, I think it's gaining especially among the younger people who don't have a preconceived uh, judgment of uh, nuclear. I think they're more open to, to than the older people of my age. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, particularly when you frame it, it like that's what was so compelling when we first talked and why I was so interested in talking with you is when you frame it in the light of this enormous wound that the Philippines live, lives with, you know, so many of its people being separated, the family impacts, yeah, um, yeah. People having to leave their yeah. homeland and, and the underdevelopment that's occurred, you know, especially compared to all these other thriving um, Asian economies, yeah. it's, it's pretty astounding. But it's interesting because the you know the Catholic Church, I think I'm not sure in general how far it goes up. There, I think there is a bit of an anti-nuclear bias there. Um, but I mean, certainly well, the Catholic Church is very concerned about climate change. Like they they make a lot of yes. statements around that. Um, they have the, a lot of concerns the bias, around poverty. The bias. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The bias on the Catholic Church, I, I would like to observe, is uh, local. No, It's because of the Philippine political agenda. Mm. But when you look at what the, uh, the Vatican has said, especially the previous Pope, uh, Pope, uh, 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 what's Benedict. his name? Benedict, yeah. Benedict right? The, the, the Pope Emeritus now, he was pro-nuclear and he said it. Uh, he, and his top cardinal said it that uh, if uh, safety is assured, um, 
it would uh, impact especially the poor. I mean, it would uplift them. So they recognize that, no? And then if you look at this current Pope, Pope Francis' uh, uh, work, his Laudito Si uh, work, uh, I would interpret it to mean that uh, nuclear would be favored because uh, it, uh, it uh, provides the good without the harm to the environment. And that's what we're, we're trying to do, isn't it? So I think it's more local than the church per se. Yeah, it's the local politics that that's driving the local clergy to be to to take that stance. In terms, so in terms of the kind of environmental side of things, it sounds like yourself and and many Filipinos, their concern is mostly with the economy and and getting more energy, so they yes. can have washing machines yeah, and things like that, that. But what are what are some of the environmental impacts of the energy system as it stands? That's so heavily reliant well, on it's coal. coal and, it's coal and gas, no? So we have to have uh, and it's mostly coal because the gas is just malampaya, which is tiny and it's running out. So they're trying to build now an LNG terminal. But I, I don't know if what happened to Japan in the last two months, uh, you know, gave them a big scare because the prices went through the roof. Uh, so, uh, so you need to find coal ash dumps, right? And the coal ash during rainy season, it leaches to the groundwater and to the sea. And in summer, when it's dry, it's dusty, the wind picks it up and it blows it all around. So you breathe up this, this dust, right? And it has heavy metals, it has other stuff that's not good for you. So that's what we have now. So uh, it's incomparably dirtier than nuclear. Nuclear is clean, it's even cleaner than wind or solar. When you, when you figure in, uh, especially when you figure in the, the backup, uh, which is gas, no? The, CO, the amount of CO2 and other stuff coming out with the gas uh, is much dirtier than nuclear could ever be by a factor of about 8 to 10. No? Mm -hmm. So we're talking of big time uh, 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 pollution uh, versus almost nothing. It is, I it can't is, see why, why yeah. environmentalists can't, uh, can't pick that up. It is interesting. I mean, when you look at the life cycle emission estimates of the IPCC for the various energy sources, um, you know, yeah. nuclear is at the rock bottom alongside wind. Solar is about four times higher than the nuclear. But, you know, I don't think it's a fair comparison when you have a, you know, a baseload dispatchable source like nuclear that doesn't require backup. And then you have wind next to it, yeah. which is so right. when you look at production profiles of wind. It's it looks like uh you know, it's just spiky, right? And, and there's these big gaps that needs to get filled in and smoothed out. And so I feel like yeah. a more honest accounting has to include, as you were saying, the, the backup sources that can stabilize yeah. that system. So IPCC doesn't uh, publish uh, figures that way. You have to do your own computation. Mm -hmm. You have to use the capacity factors of wind and solar and put the emissions numbers of gas to make up the difference. And do the same for nuclear. No, nuclear is not 100% capacity factor. It's 92%. Yeah. So there's 8% of gas in there. Put that in too. Sure. You'll find that nucle nuclear is about 50 grams per gram CO2 per, per kilowatt hour. And uh, wind is like 390 or something like that. So it's like eight times more, right? Yeah. And uh, solar, uh, because of the low capacity factor, is 400 plus, right? Yeah. So that's how I figured that out.
No, that's, that's interesting. I mean, so, I mean, I, I tend to be pretty hard on renewables. Um, you know, there's a couple environments where I think they're very appropriate. I voted, I voted for the Renewable Energy Act. Yeah. I, yeah. I debated it, but I ended up voting for it because we were promised that it was transitory in nature, that it would only, the, the fit-all, the feed-in tariff would only be given until these companies could stand on their own feet. But the way it was implemented now, the fit-all, the, the feed-in tariff allowance is being given to the company for the entire life of the project. So there's no transitory there. By the time they finish get receiving their fit-all, their wind farm and their solar plants are junk. So what transitory are we talking about? It's a permanent subsidy. That, that's what I object to. Yeah. So, so like so. the rationale for wind and solar in this setting is, well, it could help you spare burning some of that fossil fuel, right? E even if yeah, it's save not, you money, supposed yeah. to be. So, so has it been like has it dropped prices? Um, is no, it that? it's is it increased prices. Okay. Like increased prices, because um, when it runs, no, the fossil fuel plants backing it up have to slow down or idle. So that's not efficient. You're burning fuel less efficiently than if you were running at full chat, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, how can that be increasing efficiency? Um, I don't see you have to, you still have to pay for the workers that are in the plant. You have to pay for the depreciation of the plant. All these charges keep going. Mm -hmm. So you have to pay, somebody has to pay. They don't figure that out when they tell you the, 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 the cost of wind and solar. And how, how generous have the feed-in tariffs been? I know like in my province in Ontario. Oh, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, like, uh, it, it's like you paid for the, the power all over again. I mean, it's like double. Mm. Yeah, so it's, it's not cheap. It's high. And what, yeah. what, what percentage of your electricity um, is now from renewables or is that like, is that, what's the plan? I, I, I don't have the exact yeah. number. I haven't looked at it in a while, Chris, but a 10 centavo, our, our, our retail prices of electricity, I'll just say it's like almost 10 pesos per kilowatt hour, right? Mm -hmm. So 10 centavos, which is, uh, you know, what's that? 1%, uh, 10 centavos, uh, uh, of feed-in tariff in all, on all kilowatt hours in the Philippines is uh, about 10 billion pesos a year, which could pay for Bataan's uh, uh, rehabilitation in like five years, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> so you could have this nuclear plant uh, running without, with, with just that kind of a subsidy in five years, and that would be the end of that. Uh, but here you have over 20 years of funding projects uh, that, that, uh, that the funding will never end. I mean, it's forever while it's alive. So I don't know how they, how they figure that advantageous to the Filipino. So I'm just like, I'm just curious about Bataan. I understand that you go to the site often, you've walked around it. Like, what's it like being in this kind of ghost of a building that is basically ready to run, but just never, nothing happened for 30, uh, 60 what years? You will, what you will uh, notice first and foremost, if you are, if you have never been to a nuclear plant before, and if you've been to other industrial sites, is the quality of the workmanship and the materials. The choice of materials, all heavy duty, you know, you're talking of copper, stainless steel, uh, high uh, high uh, alloys, titanium uh, condenser tubes on the 
on the condensers, um, huge machinery, the turbine is huge, right? Uh, it was the biggest uh, model being offered by Westinghouse at, in that era. Now, now it's not that big, but 620 megawatts. At that time, that was the biggest single turbine you could buy. Um, so it's very impressive, no? The, the, the thickness of the concrete, the, the pristine uh, condition of the plant inside is an eye-opener. And in fact, uh, when our current uh, Secretary of Energy saw it for the first time, a few months after Duterte uh, was elected into office, we hosted the nuclear summit in Manila. And he flew by helicopter in the morning to Bataan. And then in the afternoon, he flew back and he made a speech. Uh, and he said, the hair at the back of my neck stood up when I saw how well-preserved and, and uh, robust this uh, nuclear plant is. We had crisis and, and super high price, and we never used this. What a shame. Right? To, words to that effect, no? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. he saw it. I mean, he, he, he felt that. Mm -hmm. And every, anybody who goes there will feel the same thing. What a waste. Yeah. No, it's, it's, yeah. it's really, it seems really astounding given the energy yeah. challenges that, that you guys face over yeah. there. Um, so, yeah. So, so in terms of, you know, you're campaigning, you're going around the country, you're meeting with politicians. What's your sense of, of where this is going to go? I know, you know, it, anywhere that we're kind of advocating for nuclear, it's, it seems like an impossible uphill battle. Have attitudes changed over the time? You've been advocating now, it sounds like, for over I 10 years. a lot of the, pub, the public, especially the younger people, uh, are more aware and uh, will not be so easily taken by um, fear-mongering stories. They, they want to think for themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, politicians will always be politicians. You know, they're always thinking about the next election. They don't want to stick their neck on the line. Yeah. You know, um, so it will have to be some other uh, champions to move this forward. Having Thanks. said that, uh, Duterte uh, mentioned nuclear in his campaign before he became president. After he was elected, he said it again. And then his uh, energy secretary said it, the, the speech I just told you about. Uh, so, and then recently his energy secretary uh, convened a nuclear study group no, uh, called the NEPIAC uh, Interagency Committee, you know, and uh, submitted a very positive study to the palace, to, to the uh, office of the president. So I'm waiting for the publication of that uh, finding. It's, it endorses nuclear for the Philippines. Mm -hmm. So this, this has never happened in recent uh, uh, history. I have asked them, I've asked the president himself to at least mention this in his last State of the Nation address uh, so that uh, it becomes clear. Once the president would say that, I think it would change the entire tone of the, of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Now we have a, an official wanting to have this. Uh, and then also, I think that uh, a lot of the nuclear success occurring all over the world, Bangladesh especially, you know, because we, we used to um, say that Bangladesh was so much more backward than the Philippines. You know, Bangladesh, Egypt, Turkey, Pakistan, all of these new nuclear plants, this all changes attitudes because they are success stories. 
-hmm. And the more we have of that, the more good, nuclear good news we can tell the people, the easier this job is going to get. So right. that's my hope that uh, attitudes change and that the people clamor for it at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. I mean, you mentioned sticking people's politicians sticking their necks out. You were elected three times. That's the, the maximum amount of time you can spend as a as a congressman. Yes. And yeah. um, so for you personally, has there been a, a big price or you've you've weathered the storm? Yes, I ran for governor and, and I lost no, in my province. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was able to convince my provincial board, uh, you know, when I was a congressman, uh, when, my, when my wife was a congresswoman, uh, I was able to convince the local provincial board in, in two separate uh, administrations uh, to write that letter inviting the national government to locate in this province. Um, uh, so I, w I have already done it before. And another province in the south, Sambuanga uh, del Sur, I was also able to do that. So three provinces, at, at three occasions already, I was able to, to do this. I, I want to be able to do it more mm -hmm. uh, so that we can get, we can really, you know, go to the national government and say, here, these provinces want this. I mean, there's no more reason for you to hold back. I mean, you, mm -hmm. can, you can proceed. Uh, that, that's what I want to do. Yeah. I just had one. I just had one last question. I meant to touch on it earlier, but you know, we talked about Filipinos' main concern being one around energy poverty and falling behind their neighbors, and and all the people having to leave the country to bring the foreign reserves to pay for the fossil fuels to to provide the yeah. country with some energy. Um, is is climate change on people's minds at all, or is that sort of a distance? Yes, in the but background? more on the yes, but more um, with elite, no. Yeah. Uh, with the, the rich people, yes. Uh, that's why uh, people like uh, Schellenberger, mm -hmm. I think, are, are, are also key to this struggle. Uh, they're from the other side. I see Schellenberger as being from the other side, from the environmentalist side. Mm -hmm. And here's this environmentalist who has uh, struggled and got the United States government to fund major wind and solar projects saw the, the shortcomings of them and reversed his thinking and now is a champion for nuclear power. You know, that's, so, that's so inspiring. Mm -hmm. uh, I wish that other champions uh, and, and also people like you, you know, uh, that now have a partner, you're a doctor, you're an emergency room doctor and you're doing this because you, you, see, you see the benefit to society. So we just need a a uh, critical mass of like-minded thinkers. This is now from the book of, uh, what's his name? Uh, Gladwell, right? Uh, what's it, what, uh, the tipping point. Yeah. Uh, we need a critical mass of like-minded thinkers uh, to, to get all of a sudden momentum and, inner, and, uh, and uh, this thing going forward. And I think it's, it's about where at the cusp, the world is at the cusp of this happening in a big way. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, my, my sort of entryway to nuclear was by way of concern about climate, which is still one of my major long-term concerns. But over time, it's interesting, the other arguments that come up, you know, the air pollution, morbidity of fossil fuels, and, and these social issues, like you're mentioning, energy poverty, and this kind of demographic catastrophe that's befallen the, the Philippines. Like so, electric cars. Yeah. You know, electric cars are ideal for downtown Manila where you can hardly breathe. 
you know, yeah. because of the diesel fumes, right? But uh, what are we going to run our electric cars with? Coal, electricity. So it's a coal car, right? I mean, wouldn't it be great if it was clean energy and it was, uh, you know, non-polluting, non-CO2 emitting? Mm-hmm. At the same time, we get rid of the local pollution in downtown Manila, right? Yeah. I mean, that would be ideal. So, yeah, we need a cheap, clean, yet reliable source of electricity I can, uh, so that I can charge my electric car while I sleep at night when there's no sun and it's a calm, there's no wind. I can still charge my electric car. That's mm-hmm. what we need, reliable electricity as well as clean and cheap. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Mark. Well, it's uh, it's been a real pleasure having you on Decouple. Thanks for thanks for making the time, and it's it's cool talking across time zones and, and talking into yes. the future here. It's <laughs> it's always fun. Thank you, Doc. I call you Doc, <laughs> Doc Chris. <laughs> okay. Well, it's, okay. it's a, again a pleasure having you on, and I look forward to uh, interacting with you in the future and hearing how things go and and watching yes. developments as they. When are. there's good news, I'll let you know, and then we can do this again. Okay, that sounds good. Okay. All right. Yes. Bye for now. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.